invite you to turn in your Bible to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. Let's read the word of God. Titus 2, 11 to 15. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. God, thank you for your word. Would you bless us in this time? We let our lives lay bare before what your word would have to say about your great grace. In Jesus' name, amen. In Yuyang, China, hangs the most inconvenient convenience store. Hawking water, biscuits, energy bars, and of course, Red Bulls. This convenience store is suspended 330 feet up the face of a cliff in the form of a shack-like structure secured by, hopefully, the most durable cabling in the world. It's a refreshing stop for thirsty tourist climbers as they ascend the rock in this geological park. And this inconvenient convenience store is restocked via zip line, and it's staffed by licensed climbers, of course. You can pay cash or yen, or you can even use WeChat Pay to procure surprisingly fairly priced snacks. We're not talking Dodger Stadium prices here. This is China. It's a convenience store with a rather agreeably inconvenient location. Our view of God's grace, our view of what it is, our view of how it works, our view of how and why and when God gives us grace in our lives is sometimes like this inconvenient convenience store. Now we know from God's word that his grace is unmerited, undeserved favor is not dependent on our efforts by very definition that you've heard over and over and over at Grace Community Church. It's not contingent upon what we have done, and we know this to be true in our salvation. Yet we think that as you live the Christian life, that somehow This convenience store that dispenses God's grace becomes this inaccessible shop suspended hundreds of feet in the air. It, of course, stockpiles the most refreshing realities of God's grace on our climb on this Christian walk. It dispenses these refreshing realities, God's grace, but it's not just inconvenient in our minds, it's it's impenetrable, it's, it's unapproachable, it's unreachable from where we are sometimes in life. It's grace that is seemingly unobtainable from your vantage point in trial or temptation or tribulation. Every hurdle, every pain, grace just seems more and more and more distant to you. As you fail and as you struggle, And as you flounder and you fluctuate in your emotions, 
God's grace seems so inconveniently located in a place you could never set foot. And if you tried, it would take a whole lot of effort. Is this really how grace works? I think when we face a passage, even like the one we did last week at retreat, and we think there are so many demands on our lives to be self-controlled, to be reverent in our behavior. Let's be honest, to be workers at home, submissive to our husbands, loving our husbands and our children. We don't even have those people in our lives yet. At least we don't think. Yet the grace of God in this passage in Titus helps us to see God's abundant grace supplied for us in all of life. Not just salvation, but in all of life. He gives it to us freely and accessibly. So that as Hebrews says, because of the blood of Jesus, we can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This is the kind of grace that God has toward us. This unmerited good will toward those who love him. And that's what we'll see in this passage tonight. It is the grace of God through and through from spiritual birth to final breath that helps us on our way toward our heavenly home step by step. And so last week we saw what sound living looks like in Titus 2, 1 through 10. And here we'll look at tonight the basis for that sound living. The basis is God's amazing grace. You may have thought the basis would be my personal discipline or my efforts or my involvement in discipleship. Or me finding a good church in a month when I move home. The basis for Titus 2, 1 through 10, sound living, is none of those things apart from God's grace. And it's God's grace that will shine brightly in verses 11 through 15 tonight. So tonight we'll see that the grace of God motivates us and equips us to live a life that adorns the doctrine of God. We'll see four ways that God's grace prepares us to live a life that beautifies the gospel. Four ways that God's grace prepares us to live a life that beautifies the gospel. First, we see here in verse 11 that grace saves us. Grace saves us. Look again at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, for all people. That verse begins with the word for, which grammatically tells us everything we're about to read is the basis or the motivation or the grounds upon everything before this was said. That is to say, again, Titus 2, 1 through 10, sound living is based on, is built on what we're about to see. And that's the grace of God. And in verse 11, it's the grace of God and it saves us. The grace of God has been active throughout all of redemptive history. Look back at chapter 1, verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Why did he promise before the ages began? It was in his grace and his love toward us that he promised these things. God in his grace spared Adam and Eve despite their sin. God in his grace chose Abraham and counted his belief as righteousness. God in his grace chose Israel as his people and gave them his law. God in his grace overlooked the times of sin and ignorance and waywardness. God, in his grace, promised a Messiah 
the righteous branch, the root of Jesse, all throughout redemptive history, it has been God's grace through it all. And now Paul says to us, the grace of God, the unmerited, undeserved favor of God, the goodwill of God toward man, it has appeared. It's appeared. It's shown light, literally. It's, it's made a way to become visible. And how? In the person and in the work of the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus here is the grace of God personified. John 1.14 says it this way, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Another familiar passage, Philippians 2 verse 7, he emptied himself, that is Jesus, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus, the very grace of God incarnate has appeared and he lived a life of perfect obedience to the father. He was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's described in Acts according to the definite plan, and the foreknowledge of God. We've seen that even in this book of Titus, that God would promise that sort of plan. And then this Jesus, he was raised to life by the power of that same God who made that promise. And by that victory over sin and death, grace on campus, we have salvation. Jesus brought salvation, according to this passage, to all men. To all men. Romans 10, 12, and 13 says this. After talking about Israel and the Gentiles, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That life, that eternal life could be Yours if you do not know Jesus tonight. This is your call to salvation. You could know this Jesus that has made God's grace in salvation available to all men. Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, God's grace has appeared in the person and in the work of Jesus, bringing salvation for all. What a wonderful truth. And so for all who place their faith in him, God's grace, first of all, we see in this passage, saves us. Don't let that pass you by. You may have been saved for just a few weeks now. You may have been saved since you were five years old. The truth in this passage is that God has saved you. Respond in thankfulness. Respond in gratefulness. Respond in worship even tonight. And let it motivate you to live a life then of worshipful obedience. It should spur you on to live in a self-controlled way. The grace of God and salvation should cause you to live in a way that adorns the doctrine of God, your Savior. Grace saves us. And that fact, first of all, grace on campus, motivates our gospel beautifying way of living. Secondly, in this passage, we see here that grace 
trains us. Grace trains us. Verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The appearance of God's grace in the personal work of Jesus not only saves us, but here in verse 12, we see that this same grace trains us. It educates us. It provides us instruction in two ways, two directions. Grace trains us first to renounce or put aside or deny ungodliness and worldly passions, to deny all that is an affront and offense to a righteous God, all that is sin, and to also deny, renounce, or set aside the fleeting pleasures or the desires, the epithumia, the strong passions of this world. Grace trains us simply to renounce sin to lay aside encumbrances. Ephesians 4.22 is super clear. Puts it this way. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Galatians 5.24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So first, grace trains us, educates us, provides instruction for us in renouncing sin. The second way that grace trains us here in this passage is that grace helps us in not only renouncing sin, but in living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So grace trains us to put off our old self, to deny sin, but it also trains us to put on the new self, to It trains us how to live in a more positive direction, in a Christ-like manner, to pursue godly character, to pursue sound living. Sound familiar? That's why everything in these verses is a basis for what we've already heard. You see, normally I think we're used to Ephesians 1 through 3, doctrinal education, Ephesians 4, Now you do these things. Romans 1 through 11, doctrinal education, the righteousness of God, the wrath of God against sin, the work of Christ and the peace we have with God, sure salvation, life in the spirit in Romans 8. Romans 12 through 16, do these things, send these missionaries, further advance the gospel. We're used to that sort of order. Well, here in Titus 2, We have it flip-flopped. We got the practical instruction. And now God is showing us through the Apostle Paul, this is our basis for living sound doctrine out. And here grace trains us in a positive direction. And Paul here, in a sense, summarizes his instruction from verses 1 through 10. He says, grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. In every station of life, we saw last week, in all areas of life, we must pursue sound living. In behavior, in speech, in drink, in dignity, in integrity, you must be self-controlled. You must be sensible. You must be reverent. You must be sober minded or chaste, all of these things and all for the sake of beautifying the gospel. The end of verse 10, adorning the doctrine of God, our savior. So grace trains us to first renounce sin and then also to live godly lives. Sort of a negative, renounce, positive, take on, put on, pursue godly character. But the grace of God trains us not only by helping us to discern right from wrong, ungodliness from godliness. 
the grace of God, and catch this, I think this is so important. The grace of God also trains us in godliness by showing us the path in our growth to holiness is still, even now, as you struggle, it is overflowing still with the grace of God. It's not just your salvation that you should hearken back to to receive more grace in the current struggle or trial or conflict that you have. God's grace is present and active in your growth and holiness in every moment. You see, as you pursue sound living, you need grace for your failures and your doubts and your lack of trust. We need grace. We need the continual presence of God's favor in our lives. And not only do we need it, we have it. We do. God, in his great kindness, trains us in righteousness and extends us so much grace. Because we do have Jesus's once for all sacrifice for sins that Hebrews 10 describes, we need not needlessly chase perfection in this life. We should pursue godliness, but we have Christ's perfect righteousness. And so we need not hold our own standard of perfection over our heads. We need not have insecurity or pushy, you better obey or else sort of Christianity because we have full and final peace with God that has been won for us by Jesus. That is the grace of God. There is nothing left to prove, nothing left to earn. It's the grace of God. Grace trains us to understand that the grace of God is truly and always going to be the grace of God. I believe too often we have a fundamental misunderstanding of God's grace toward us in our lives. I think we know we are saved by grace, but we so often think that God's grace stops there. We think that in some way we're left on our own after salvation. That at the point of justification, after God's grace is finished working miraculously, that somehow everything is our own effort from there on out. That godliness or pursuit of growth and maturity becomes some sort of merit-based, graceless system. Here's the picture I get as I think about our misunderstanding of grace in our lives. I get this picture that the gracious God over all of the universe, that he adopts us as sons and daughters. He makes us a, a part of his family. He's, he's even signed all of the proper documentation. He's gone to the, the state building like he's supposed to, He's gone back home, filled out the applications, went back to the state building, gone to all the appointments. In between all those appointments, he's prepared a room for us. He's gotten all the age-appropriate toys and the gate for the stairs. He's even set a place for us at the table. It's got the pink or blue or yellow or green placemat and the matching little silverware and the right size plate with all the dividers and the perfect sippy cup. And then he books the tickets. God doesn't travel like this. I know he books the tickets. He makes that international flight and he, he scoops us up into his arms and he brings us home. Adoption. A beautiful picture of the gospel. And I think in our twisted version, or twisted understanding of God's grace, he brings us home. And then he leaves us on the doorstep to fend for ourselves. I think that's our understanding of grace sometimes as we think about how it operates in our lives. But no, God does not leave us 
at the doorstep. He does not abandon us at salvation. He does not withdraw from us and leave us without grace. He walks with us. He shepherds us. He leads us. He trains us in righteousness. When you feel guilty, he reminds you, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you doubt, he has given you, he has left you the spirit who himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And Jesus, he himself is the full assurance that we need to live a life fully secure, fully sure that we are his. He is the God who cannot lie. And yet we fail and we still sin and we still struggle and we flail and we climb uphill in our maturity. But still, he does not leave us. He does not abandon us. He does not withdraw from us. He gives us grace again and again and again. This is how grace truly and surely, God's undeserved and unmerited favor, this is how grace trains us. It shows us that it is indeed still grace. And to those who are his, if you are his, this is the grace he will continually show you until your final breath. And this is the grace by which he will call you home as well. As we mature and pursue godly character and sound living, he pours out this kind of grace on you. As we face trials and temptations, he abundantly pours out his grace on you. As you fail in your walk and you struggle lifelong with the same sin that you've struggled with for years, he powerfully pours out his grace on you and he is patient with you. As we grow slowly and imperfectly, he pours out his grace on you. Grace on campus as we see his ever-present grace in our lives in failure, in our folly, and in our fortune, would we, Grace on Campus, respond to each sign of God's grace in our lives, in gratefulness, in worship, in obedience? And so whether that be in, in the form of repentance, or in a form of dependence, or in the form of pressing on still more, let us see God's grace as it trains us to see that it really is grace. Grace is grace. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. So stop acting like you earn it in some way. And embrace the grace of a God who already is ready to embrace you in every trial and every temptation. And so this grace trains us, not by holding a guillotine of expectation over you, but by patiently and knowingly showing you God's grace as you grow. David Murray and his wife Shona Murray wrote this in their book, we don't need to serve, sacrifice, or suffer our way to human or divine approval. Because Christ has already served, sacrificed, and suffered for us. And so we strive to live godly lives, not because we need to continually gain his approval, but because worshipfully and humbly and dependent on grace, we just want to beautify his glorious gospel. This is how grace trains us. It shows us to deny sin and live godly lives, but grace trains us to see and understand God's grace is God's grace in all of life's struggles, all of life's failures, and all of the trials. Grace 
trains us by showing us more grace. Embrace that grace on campus. So grace saves us, grace trains us, and grace thirdly gives us hope. Grace gives us hope. Look at verse 13. While we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, 13, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace has appeared in the personal work of Jesus, and here we see grace gives us a future hope. As those saved by grace, being trained by the grace of God now to deny sin and live godly lives, we adorn the doctrine of God right now. We beautify the gospel by the way we live and we embrace the grace that it takes to do so. And all the while though, in verse 13, here we see that grace shows us a forward-looking perspective, an upward gaze. Paul says we are waiting for our blessed hope. Now this hope, if you remember our discussion in our very first sermon in Titus, is not this sort of cross your fingers, hope for the best thing to happen kind of hope. It's not just hoping something will happen. It's not just dreaming or wishing. The hope we hold as followers of Jesus is instead a confident expectation that God will do as he promised before even the ages began. It's a longing for, a desire for the fulfillment of the hope of eternal life. We don't have to cross our fingers because the God overall holds the universe in the palm of his hands. We don't have to just hope things go well in this life because the sovereign God makes all things work together for the good of those who love him. We don't just wish that Jesus will come back. We know he will because the God who never lies has said that he will return in glory. This is our blessed hope. This is our joyful expectation. This is the kind of hope we wait with for Jesus in eager expectation in every moment. Jesus' appearance here, his second coming, bookends the timeline of redemption we've seen in this book of Titus. Before the ages began, God promised this hope of eternal life. And in Jesus, grace has appeared, as we've seen in this passage, bringing salvation for all people. And we've seen God is patient that all he would desire would come to repentance. And now we see a snapshot into when he returns at the end of the ages. He will appear in glory. Come over to Matthew 25 with me and look at what this will look like. Matthew 25, I think it's a beautiful picture of Christ's return and reign. Matthew 25, verse 31, when the son of man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And look at verse 32, sort of a warning to all of us. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Verse 34, this is our hope. Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Turn back to Titus. This is the blessed 
hope we have as blessed saints that when he appears, we will inherit the kingdom. It's been promised and prepared for us from before the foundation of the world, Titus 1-2, in the hope of eternal life. This is our hope that he will return in glory. And so grace gives us hope. It's quite often that in our household, we have three young boys. My wife, Kimmy, and I, we have the blessing of raising them. And it's often that we will order something from our all favorite retail therapy website, Amazon.com. Maybe it's just an app to you. But as that box or that mailer bag comes, the boys eagerly see on the little camera that the delivery man's here again. And of course, they grab the package that's probably too heavy for them, and they take turns trying to bring it in. And then when it's in the house, the first thing is always, Mommy, can we open it? And my wife's gotten a little bit wiser over time with how the situation should go. And nowadays, she'll say, let's wait for Daddy to come home. And if you're good, we can open the package. Now, they don't know. We don't leave packages unopened. We open all the packages. But if you're good, we can open it when daddy comes home. And sometimes it's two or three o'clock. I come home at four or five o'clock. Sometimes it's like 11. And with those words, we can open it when daddy comes home. If you're good, their behavior just changes dramatically. They have this minuscule, minute hope that because when daddy comes home and they've been good, they can open this package. Grace on campus, the grace in this passage that gives us the hope that we have of expecting Jesus to return is the greatest hope that anyone could ever have to be reunited with our savior. And all Paul is saying is that this grace that's giving us future hope should cause us to live a certain way. Titus 2, 1 through 10, sound living as we await this great hope. And so as we live our lives now on this earth, we live with this perspective in light of our future hope, that by our sound living, by our godly character, by our obedience to God, we beautify the gospel of blessed hope and bring others around us to see him and then to know him also. Our lives, because of our blessed hope that grace shows us, should adorn the doctrine of God and bring others to to want this hope and to know this hope as well. We have this blessed hope, Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Grace gives us hope. Lastly, in this passage, we see that grace sets us apart. Grace sets us apart. Verses 14 and 15. Look just at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Grace not only saves us, grace not only trains us, grace not only gives us a blessed hope, but grace here sets us apart. Grace makes us his. This verse characterizes the saving work of Jesus. It expounds on verse 13. Verse 13 describes the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this verse, verse 14, describes the Savior aspect of it. Who gave himself for us. And we've seen this kind of gospel truth in Titus so far over and over, but this time Paul takes an angle 
that helps us understand the effect that the grace that is found at the cross has on our lives. This is our spiritual reality. We see two effects here that the grace found at the cross has. First, we see that he gave himself for us. For what purpose? To redeem us from all lawlessness. First, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That is to free us from sin. The idea here is the same found in Romans 6. Listen to Romans 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died, that is with Christ, has been set free from sin. And so this is our redeemed life in Christ. This is what Christ gave himself for us for, so that we would no longer be under the power of sin, no longer under, under its dominion, no longer enslaved to lawlessness, as it says in this passage. Well, Jesus also gave himself for us, secondly, to not only redeem us from lawlessness, but also to make us his, to set us apart as his own people. You see, this is twofold. He's set us free from our old master sin, out of bondage and slavery to sin. He's taken us out of that life, and he's made us his Grace sets us apart, takes us from sin, and makes us God's. Now, how did God do this? How did Jesus do this with his work? He did this by purifying for himself a people for his own possession. You see, Jesus on the cross won many a victory for us in spiritual realities. But one of those things is that in his death on the cross, Jesus purified us. He washed us clean. And by doing that, this passage is saying, by purifying us, he made us his own possession. First Corinthians 6 says it this way, such were some of you. After describing a long list of godlessness. And Paul writes, but you were what? Washed. You were sanctified or set apart, in other words. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If time permitted, we would turn to Ezekiel 36 and see God in promising the new covenant covenant says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be cleansed from all your uncleannesses and from your idols, I will cleanse you. In this new covenant sealed by the work of Jesus, God in his grace purifies us, washes us by the blood of Jesus, cleansing us from all our sin so that we would be a people for his own possession. We see, this in, we see this illustrated in God's choosing of Israel. Turn to Deuteronomy 7 really quick. Deuteronomy 7, and we see God's choosing of Israel. Look at seven, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. God says as he recasts his law to his people, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God and holy being set apart. The Lord your God has chosen you to be, be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Verse 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him 
and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. In Deuteronomy here, we see God's gracious covenant love toward his people Israel, that for nothing they had done, for nothing attractive about them, or not that they had loved him first, he chose them. He loved them. He purified them and made them a people for his own possession, set apart for him. Sound familiar? He's done that for us. We are God's people. He has purified us by the blood of his son. And so we are his. We are set apart for his honorable use. And unlike Israel, who spurned God's deliverance from Egypt and continually disobeyed him, we are to be obedient people. Titus 2, 1 through 10 10, kind of people. Truly set apart, markedly holy, separate and distinct from the world around us. And so will the modern Cretan version of our culture around us are liars. We are to tell the truth and spread the truth and graciously and winsomely live the truth to the people around us. And while the Cretans around us are evil beasts, we are to be committed to good deeds, making an honest living, reverent in our behavior. While the Cretans around us are lazy gluttons, we are to be working hard, whether at home or at work, a testimony of temperate consumption, a people whose God is not our belly, but the God who created food and drink. We are a people for God's own possession set apart for him. And Paul adds on here, zealous for good works. You see, as those redeemed from slavery to sin and made God's people, we in thankfulness, in worship, reflect our heavenly father by our good works, by the way that we live. We ought to indeed pursue godliness. Romans shows us grace does not nullify this. We should pursue godly living. We should, with our lives, adorn his doctrine. We should beautify the gospel. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. Paul continues in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so grace sets us apart to be his people who are zealous for good works, prepared by grace to represent him in all of life. And so we make the gospel beautiful by being self-controlled. We make the gospel beautiful by being reverent in our behavior. We make the gospel that we believe beautiful by fulfilling our divinely designed roles in the home and in the church. We make the gospel beautiful by being sound in faith love and steadfastness in old age. We make the gospel beautiful at every station in life, in every area of life, that by our good works, those around us would see and find life in him. This is what grace prepares us to do, to beautify the gospel. And of this grace, Paul says to Titus in verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This grace on campus is the way God wants us to live. This is sound living. This is what he has for us as his people. And so Titus, the preacher of Crete, is to declare these things, to exhort to rebuke God's people so that they would live like God's people. No apologies. 
Let no one disregard you, Paul says. Live like God's people in light of God's grace. That is the authority this word comes to us with tonight. We cannot disregard what God has for us in this passage. And as God's people, we see here God's grace in our lives. (laughs) That it saves us. It trains us. It gives us hope. And it sets us apart to be his. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far. And it's grace that will lead me home. The Lord's promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Grace on campus, his grace is too wondrously amazing for us to disregard. We have been transformed by his grace and we continue in his grace. And so would we, in light of grace, respond to this call for sound living with thankful hearts, fully dependent on the God of all grace. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord God, we thank you for your grace. It truly, (coughs) it truly is And so we're thankful, God, that from salvation to sanctification until glory, it is all of your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Grace doesn't stop at the point of justification. Your grace covers all of our sin, past, present, and future, until you call us home. And so God, help us to live richly in this grace now and until eternity. In your son's name, amen.